Hello, and welcome to Scare You to Sleep. I'm your host, Shelby Scott. The teen episode is finally here. Some of these are very spooky, and some are very gory. I tucked the gorier ones in at the end so I can ease you in a bit. Enough chit-chat, let's get down to it. This first story is by Colin Cox, who was 18 and just started college a couple of months ago. Congrats, Colin. Good luck on your first semester. Colin has for us the story, The Girl in the Puddle. The Dodson family had lived in Connecticut all their lives and had never seen a storm this bad. The sky was as dark as Mrs. Dodson's eyeliner, which she had smeared on in her hurry to get her, Jared, and Elisa to school. The rain bashed the windows with a violent fervor and slowly accumulated into large puddles in the yard. As the storm brewed, Mr. Dodson was hard at work placing buckets, pots, and bowls under the leaks in the ceiling throughout the kitchen and dining room. As he did, he grumbled to himself, insisting that one day he'll fix the roof, as it hadn't been renovated since the house was built back in 73. Meanwhile, Jared was upstairs trying to comfort his little sister, as she is terrified of storms. He insisted that a few rounds of hide-and-seek would help her feel better. Reluctantly, she agreed, but only on one condition. No hiding in the basement. Since Jared was older, he said that he should hide first. Therefore, Elisa was stuck counting. She moved into the corner of the hallway, closed her eyes, and began counting, descending from 60. As she began counting, she began to feel uneasy, like someone was watching her from afar. But she continued on. When she finally reached zero, she let out a loud, Ready or not, here I come! and began down the hallway, peering into each room, making the occasional glance under the bed or behind a door, even looking in the closets, but to no avail. It had been 20 minutes and Elisa was getting worried. She had been everywhere, except the basement. Nervously, she approached the old oak door that led down to the basement. It was scuffed up and worn in its age, but also looked as though it had never been touched before. It was dust-covered, and the neglect was shown in the old chipped white paint. Elisa grasped the brass handle of the door and opened it slowly. The squeak of the rusted hinges rang in her ears, and the darkness at the bottom of the stairs seemed to creep around her and fill her field of vision with darkness. Elisa tried very hard to suppress that eerie feeling she had, as she stared down into the black abyss that her family called a basement. She recalled her last experience down there, when she and Jared were playing tag and he grew angry with her and locked her in. She remembered what it felt like to be swallowed up by darkness. It was like a lead weight was placed on her chest, slowly suffocating her. She hated that place with everything in her, and Jared knew that. But she couldn't help but feel... He was hiding down there somewhere, breaking her one and only rule. She slowly crept down the stairs into the dark, calling out for her brother. When she reached the bottom of the stairs, she flipped the light switch, and to her dismay, 
Only one faint bulb turned on at the opposite end of the basement. She slowly walked past old furniture covered with water-stained sheets and mountains of boxes filled with family heirlooms and old keepsakes. Elisa was peeking around every corner and under every sheet, frantically searching for her brother. But as she neared the end of the basement, she began to feel alone. Until she heard it. Elisa heard the unmistakable voice of a little girl coming from behind her. She froze in place, unsure if she should even turn around, but eventually she builds up the courage. As she slowly turned, she saw nothing but the towering boxes and covered furniture swaddled in the darkness that filled the room. She did, however, see a shallow puddle perhaps emanating from the storm outside leaking through. She looked down into the puddle, and what she saw pierced her heart with fear. As she peered down, she saw the reflection of a little girl standing right behind her, staring down into that same puddle. However, she seemed just as frightened of Elisa as she was of her. The little girl in the puddle quickly vanished, leaving ripples in the puddle and the faint sound of crying in the air. Elisa stood there, frozen in fear, unaware of what she had just witnessed. After a few moments, Elisa heard a voice call out from upstairs. It appeared to say, Honey, dinner is ready. So, Elisa presumed it was her mother. As she frantically rushed toward the stairs, she heard the door slam and the light in the basement suddenly went out, leaving Elisa alone, in the dark, crying. It didn't take much longer for Jared to find her, running down the stairs, proclaiming his status as hide-and-seek champion. When he reached the bottom of the stairs, however, he saw Elisa, in tears. He told her not to be sad, it was only a game. He was hiding in the bathtub the whole time, he assured her. But she was inconsolable. She frantically began rambling about what she had seen and heard. She told her brother that she saw a girl in the puddle, and then the door slammed. Of course, Jared had trouble believing any of this. He insisted that it was just her imagination getting to her. After all, the basement was creepy anyways. Elisa returned upstairs with her brother, still shaken from what she had seen. Both children could smell dinner and soon heard their mother call out. As they both rushed into the kitchen, Elisa looked up at her mother and immediately took a step back. Her mother's face was distorted, battered, and cut, with burns and scars covering the beauty she previously remembered. Her mother moved closer as Elisa began to cry, and as she moved into the light, her face returned to normal. Elisa was confused and her mother concerned, but she motioned that they both head to the dinner table and try to have a good rest of the night. As the family sat down for dinner, Elisa joined hand with her family. As they began to pray, she felt a light breathing down the back of her neck. And soon, she heard the faint sound of a couple arguing and a young girl crying. She distinctly heard the deep, grisly voice of an angry man. 
His shouting felt like it was coming from right behind her, as if Elisa was sitting in his lap. The argumentative couple soon faded, though, and before Elisa could catch her breath, new terror filled her ears. It was a loud screech, followed by honking and the shattering of glass. Her hands began to shake lightly as she grew afraid, and as she opened her eyes, her heart sank. She was no longer holding the hands of her family, but instead was hanging upside down in an old station wagon, held only by her seatbelt. As she looked around, she saw the bodies of her mother and father, both trapped in the shattered glass and burning dashboard of the old car. As she turned, she saw her brother, unrecognizable. Having not had his seatbelt on, he was slammed into the seat in front of him, and his body had become disfigured and bloody, mangled beyond recognition. Elisa began to cry violently until she was unable to breathe. She felt her throat swell up as she sobbed. Never before had she felt such sorrow. Elisa began to shake and hear the voice of her mother. She closed her eyes and when she opened them again, she was back at the dinner table, joined by her family again. She wiped her tears away and told her family that the storm had just startled her. The family continued on with their meal, everyone enjoying themselves, except Elisa, who couldn't get the image of the gruesome accident out of her head. As dinner came to a close, Mrs. Dodson took the children upstairs to be bathed. As Jared was older, he showered alone. However, Elisa was only seven, so she still needed her mother's help. Her mother drew the bath with extra bubbles, just the way Elisa liked it and soon helped her in and began washing her hair. Her mother sang Elisa's favorite song to her while she brushed her hair, and as mother lightly hummed the lyrics to Old King Cole, Elisa tried to let go of all she had seen today. She couldn't escape the image of her family, bruised and bloodied from head to toe. Soon came time to wash her hair, so Elisa went gently under the water. As she washed her hair, she opened her eyes and about lost all her breath. Because as she looked up, she could see in the reflection of the water. The girl from the puddle. The girl stared down into the water from above as if she was watching the water. And this time, she could not see Elisa. Elisa quickly shot up from the water, gasping for air and searching frantically for her mother. When she emerged, however, Mother was nowhere to be seen. In fact, the entire decor of the bathroom had changed. The pink flowered bordering and light gray carpets and matching drapery, which her mother had been so fond of, was replaced with a dingy white color scheme with light gray rugs lining the tub and sink. Standing at the sink, she saw the little girl from the puddle, wrapped in a towel, with a taller woman, presumably her mother, standing behind her, helping her brush her teeth. Elisa stood, frozen in place, as if all of time had stopped. She waited for the two figures to leave the room before she grabbed a towel of her own and covered up, 
before finally gaining the courage to leave the room. As Elisa slowly and carefully approached the door, she left a long trail of water droplets behind her. She opened the door into a redecorated version of the hallway she so fondly remembered. No longer was it donned with family photos and mother's poor attempts at painting, but instead it was lined with pictures of a new family. She examined the photos on the wall. They seemed to contain the girl from the puddle and the tall woman who accompanied her, as well as a large man with very prominent facial features such as his scruffy beard and mustache. Elisa was very wary of this man. In each photo, he appeared to be angry or emotionless. Her mood dampened as if a black cloud had been cast over her. She knew this family was not a happy family. Not like hers. Elisa continued down the hall, trailing drops of water behind her with each passing step. She glimpsed into each room, searching for any sign of her parents or brother. As she approached the stairs, she heard a loud crash from the kitchen, and what appeared to be a booming voice, that of a man's, shouting at a volume which hurt Elisa's ears. As she slowly walked down further to try to see what was going on, she heard a little girl crying, and footsteps heading towards the stairs. Elisa soon saw the little girl from the puddle running towards her. Elisa closed her eyes and prepared for the worst. However, when she opened them, the girl was gone. When Elisa turned around, she saw the little girl running towards her room. It appeared that she had simply walked right through Elisa. As Elisa continued down the stairs, she caught a peek into the kitchen. She saw a large man standing over the tall woman. He was shouting at her, calling her words that Elisa had never heard before, and the abrasive smell of alcohol emanating from the room was something Elisa couldn't recognize. She saw the big man hit the tall woman, knocking her to the floor, and she knew this was something that would never happen between her parents. She was frightened and began to head back upstairs, and as she approached the bathroom, she heard the humming of her mother. Elisa returned to the bathtub and brought her head underneath the water. As she resurfaced, Elisa recognized the bathroom she was in and turned to see her mother. She jumped up and hugged her mother tightly and began to cry softly. Mrs. Dodson knew something was amiss and gave her daughter a hug, assuring her everything would be all right. As night fell, Elisa and Jared both went to bed with Mrs. Dotson reading them both a bedtime story to calm them down after a rough day. As her mother began to read, Elisa fell into a deep sleep, and so did Jared. In her sleep, Elisa had visions of her and her family, in the car, on their way to New Jersey, to visit the grandparents. The whole family was piled into Mr. Dotson's old red station wagon, Everyone was singing and Elisa was smiling, but soon the singing was interrupted by the loud honking of a semi, followed by a loud crashing sound and the crunching of glass. The smell of gasoline and burnt flesh filled the air around Elisa. And as she looked up, only to see the same horrific disaster she had been exposed to earlier. 
Elisa awoke in a panic, sweat pouring down her face, barely able to catch her breath. As she gazed around the room, she could see Jared was asleep. Elisa was about to lay back down. When she saw, out of the corner of her eye, the girl from the puddle. The girl was curled up by the door, crying. And instead of Elisa being scared, she was sad for the little girl. All the fear Elisa had felt before vanished suddenly in a moment of nothing but care and concern. Elisa arose from her bed and patiently made her way over to the corner of the room. She sat down next to the girl and placed her hand on the little girl's shoulder. The little girl soon turned. She had felt Elisa's touch. When Elisa began to speak, she told the girl that everything was okay and there was no need to be sad. However, when the little girl looked at Elisa... She let out a horrific shriek, like a banshee in the night. The girl began to shout at Elisa, commanding her to get away from her. She covered her face and began to cry harder and scream louder, calling out for her mother. Elisa was confused. She thought she could help. But when she looked up into the mirror on the wall, she understood why the little girl screamed. Elisa was horrifically burned, covered in cuts and bruises. She had teeth missing and whole segments of skin burned away. Most of her skin was missing. She slowly rose up her hands and began to feel her face, and she felt it. Blood, rough, leathery skin, and burnt segments of flesh. Elisa began to scream and cry out for her mother. Soon her mother burst into the room, but rather than comfort Elisa, she told her to quiet down. Mother told Elisa not to let them hear her, and ushered Elisa and herself into the closet. Soon after the tall woman entered the room, Elisa peered through the slats in the closet door, and watched as the tall woman began to comfort the girl from the puddle, telling her it was all just a bad dream. After Elisa quieted down and the tall woman had exited the room, Mother sighed and told her it was time she learned the truth. Mother gathered the rest of the family, escorted them to the living room and sat them all down. She looked at Elisa and told her how much she loved her. Elisa became increasingly concerned as her mother spoke clearly withholding something of dire importance from her. Mother began to tear up as she looked at Elisa and explained the truth. Mrs. Dodson said that on May 19, 2004, the whole family was on the way to grandmother's house. Elisa remembers this. She remembered seeing grandma and grandpa and their dog and having grandma's not-so-famous spaghetti and meatballs. When she told this to mother, mother sighed and laughed lightly, saying that she remembers that too, but it's not the truth. She insisted Elisa focus more on that day and try to remember the song they were singing when it happened. Mother began to hum the lyrics to 
over the river and through the woods. And as Elisa heard that song, she remembered. The family had all piled into Dad's old station wagon and left bright and early that morning. Everyone was so excited to see Grandma and Grandpa, so they all began to sing. In the middle of the song, however, Elisa remembered that same honking and began to remember looking up to see a semi-truck veering off the road into their lane. The driver had lost control and hit the station wagon head-on, killing everyone. Mother explained that the memories they had were what they wanted to remember, and in reality, they all died that day. She informed Elisa that they are stuck in the veil in their old house, seeing it as it was, and the people Elisa had been seeing is the new family who lives here. Mrs. Dodson told Elisa that they didn't want her to know until she was old enough to understand. And now that she has begun to catch glimpses of the other side, it was time for her to know. As Elisa began to cry, the whole family embraced. The warm touch of her mother and father no longer felt as warm as it had before. But, nevertheless, she felt warm inside, and she knew that no matter what, they would be together as a family forever. You know, I feel very fortunate that I have very interactive listeners. I talk to you guys a lot. You guys email me and message me and we talk on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and it's been great. And you know, one way in which we've been very interactive with one another is our collective love of deodorant. And you guys know what deodorant I'm talking about. I'm talking about Native. If you haven't heard my show yet, then let me tell you about the wonders of Native. Native is a company that creates safe, simple, and effective products. And you know, I always talk about their deodorant, but did you know they make like body wash too? Isn't that amazing? It's formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc. It's filled with ingredients found in nature, such as coconut oil, shea butter, tapioca starch. It's never tested on animals and free shipping and returns always. It works. You know that I always talk about my favorite scent, coconut vanilla, but you know what? Because of the teen episode, I'm going to tell you, they have an entire teen section on their website, and they've got the cutest friggin' names for their deodorants. Loco for Coco, One in a Melon, Vitamin C, and Make Like a Tree. And you know, it really, really works. Making the switch to an aluminum-free deodorant does not mean having to sacrifice on product performance. I talked about this all summer. You guys, it got up to 95 degrees in my apartment, and I was not sweaty or stinky. I smelled amazing. And... You know what? When I first started talking about Native, I think they only had 8,000 five-star reviews. Well, guess what? Now they have over 9,000 five-star reviews. It also has something for everyone. I mentioned the teen deodorants. They've got seasonal scents for the adults, and one of them is pumpkin spice. I mean, come on. Their classic scents are coconut and vanilla, my favorite, lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, and eucalyptus and mint. And it's no risk to try. They offer free returns and exchanges within the USA. And you know, before I go, I have to say, 
My favorite thing I've started to notice since I've been using it for so long now is how moisturizing it is. My armpits are so happy and moisturized and pretty and you don't get those like, you know, those nasty flakies. It looks like dried skin, but it's not. It's, it's deodorant residue and it's nasty. So I have a unique offer for you for 20% off your first purchase. Visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code SCAREYOU during checkout. That's 20% off your first purchase. If you visit nativedeodorant.com and use promo code SCAREYOU, I will have the link in the show notes. Now back to the show. This next story is called Agatha and Mabel by Ailey, age 16. Queen's Sanitarium had been open for two years in 1888. The clinic was vast, and it sat on the edge of the dark sky indistinctly. Its gloomy face smiled a bleak frown against the landscape. Outside, lining the road, the trees were brittle in the darkening sky. They swayed in the wind, bending to the earth as though they were digging the graves of the inmates. The desolate road yawned for miles and miles. Inside Queens, the gloomy lights flickered, the long, colorless hallways stretched throughout the asylum. Mother's dark hair framed her gentle face in the tight little bun she wore. She wore this now because she was a widow. Her delicate boots scraped along the wooden floor and her long, satin skirts swooshed softly as she walked to Father's portrait. From the painting, Father's thick, straw-like hair fell over his face, and his mustache curled out on either side of his mouth. Mabel saw Mother clasp her hands tightly. Mabel thought Mother might start crying again. Mabel's own hair was dark also, and sat in tight, neat pigtails on her shoulders. Mother wouldn't let her wear her hair up, as she wasn't a lady yet. Mabel's hair was such a dark brown that it was sunless. Agatha's hair was sunlight yellow. This morning, Mabel and Agatha sat in the drawing room, eating the lunch that Cook had made. Mother wasn't eating. Mother hadn't eaten much since Father died. Mabel looked towards the bottom of the garden now and squinted at the plants there. Agatha's curls bounced as she jumped up from her seat. Hurry out! She whispered in a sneer. She prodded Mabel and ran out of the French windows and into the garden. Mother didn't even look at Agatha as she ran past. Mother, may we go play now? We have finished lunch. Mabel requested. Mother wasn't really listening. As long as you have finished all of your vegetables. At the bottom of the garden, Mabel watched as Agatha's slim figure dashed amongst the rose bushes. Playful as always, Agatha's dress swung as she twirled around, and Mabel laughed at the sight. With the sun on her golden curls, Agatha paused, and her inky eyes gleamed as she gestured to Mabel to follow her. The garden stretched downhill, and Mabel jubilantly skipped and followed Agatha's lead. Both girls laughed. 
It was then that Mabel realized that they were at the garden shed. Agatha stood at the door, looking towards Mabel, who had stopped suddenly. Come on then, silly. Her dark eyes narrowed. But no one was allowed in the shed. Not now. Even though Mabel shook her head, Agatha's whispers pulled her on. Prize the door open. Mabel did as she was told. Agatha jumped up and down in excitement and could barely contain herself as Mabel pulled the door open. As the door opened, a waft of must and dampness swirled. The daylight spilled in weakly from behind Agatha's shadowy figure in the doorway. Mabel, there's something for you in there. There's something we left in here last time. Mabel stepped further into the shed. That's when she saw the glint on the floor. Lying there on the floor was Father's razor. The sharp-edged object was covered in old blood. Mabel stood frozen. But why is this still here? She whispered. Shouldn't they have taken that away? Quickly, put it away before anyone sees us with it. No one must see it. Agatha hissed. But still, Mabel stood dumbfounded. She saw Agatha roll her eyes. Your handkerchief! Wrap it up in your handkerchief! Doing as she was told, Mabel tucked it up in her sleeve. When Mother's voice came from the drawing room, Agatha and Mabel ran out of the shed, locking the door behind. Look at you! You're covered in dirt! What have you been doing? Mabel mumbled. Playing in the garden, looking for treasure. Mother sniffed. <laughs> that is not very ladylike. Get yourself cleaned up before Miss Green arrives. The nursery was situated upstairs and sat indecisively on the top floor. This was the quietest room for the girls' tutoring. The small balcony rested over the garden, peering down shyly. The large doll's house sat in the corner, unopened for years, not since Agatha had outgrown it. The two girls now sat at the polished table. Today was mathematics. Mabel was unprepared, but Agatha looked confident. Miss Green would be here soon. Miss Green had a serious, somber air about her. Her flat hair was pulled back sternly into a low bun, her striped blouse buttoned up tightly, and her long, dark skirts brushed the floor. Mabel could hear Mother's and Miss Green's footsteps up the stairs. She moved to the door and listened into the conversation from inside the room. She has been so dreadfully affected by her father's passing. Of course, to kill himself and in that way. So viciously. So shocking for all of us. No, you don't have to say so much blood. Mother sniffed. I just need some rest. I, I think a rest would be good for everyone. Miss Green sounded sympathetic. I understand. Agatha asked, What are they saying? Mabel whispered, Mother's going away. Miss Green entered the room and smiled thinly. Sit, Mabel. Copy this down. Mabel watched as Miss Green wrote on the small chalkboard. 
She felt Agatha lean over, whisper. Mabel hesitated, looking at Agatha. Agatha stared, determinedly. Mabel reached into her sleeve. Her hands shook as she unwrapped. She remembered the last time she and Agatha had played with the razor. It hadn't ended as she had expected. Miss Green stopped writing on the little board, realizing Mabel wasn't copying. Mabel suddenly launched it at Miss Green, and Agatha's delighted laugh rang into her ears. At Queen's Sanatorium, the bedrooms were painfully neat and bright. The long, ill-lighted hallway stretched darkly, and Mabel felt it push her onwards. She held Agatha's hand and felt Mother's whimpering shadow behind her. Agatha's expression was dull. She looked calm. Mabel felt this reassure her. If Agatha was calm, she should be too. The sound of a nurse injecting a patient in the room just next door echoed. Keep them docile, Agatha whispered. Poor mother, that will be her soon. Mabel and Agatha were guided to a room just before the end of the hallway. Mabel felt startled entering the room as a nurse also entered with Mabel's own suitcase and placed it down. And Mabel wondered where that had appeared from. The neat little bed screamed at Mabel with its white sheets, and she sat on its edge, playing anxiously with her fingers. Will this be your room, Mother? Mother didn't reply, but started crying again, and turned and fled down the long corridor. Mother? Mabel looked over at the nurse. Where's Agatha's bed? The nurse rolled her eyes. Now we don't need any of your stories here, young lady. We won't stand for that. She turned around and left. She locked the door. Mabel ran to the door, trying to pry it open. She put her ear up against it. Along the hall, she could hear the nurse speaking to another. The mother didn't warn us she had an imaginary friend. Mabel turned her back to the room. Agatha was gone. This next story is by Andrew, age 17, and it's called Dark Days. The dead earth sprawls out forever. It's a painful reminder of the green it had been before the war. I'm leaving the settlement of half-destroyed houses and makeshift shelters. Christine calls over from our semi-reconstructed house. Tom, be careful, she said quietly. Love you. Kyle's wiry figure scuttles out of the door flap. But not me, eh? He laughs. She smiles a little. Only because you have to love your brother. I kiss her forehead and turn around, 
I can feel her concentrated stare on my back as I trudge off. Kyle and I scour around the broken building on the hill. A decaying body has long ago been scavenged for anything useful. We carry weapons. Kyle carries two rifles. The first a standard military issue, the second a Springfield sniper. I carry a reinforced steel claymore. We hope for anything that might be of use to our settlement of survivors. The derelict homes are silhouetted against the dark skyline. I push my graying hair from my face. It's long now and falls messily on my shoulders. My clothes are layered up with rough spun garments. I'm not the Air Force captain I once was. We watch for the gang of raiders recently arrived. The thick, poisonous fog remains constant, making visibility difficult, but I see smoke rising from a freshly lit fire. Its black swirl stands out against the bleached vegetation. I wonder who has set the fire. I feel Kyle at my side, who nudges me. Look. I look down the hill. Two small figures emerge out of a wrecked London black cab, walk towards the fire they have clearly set. A youngish girl, and a little boy. The autumn of 1942 was mild, but the red brick fireplace in our cottage was already set in a small and cozy way. I was in my usual armchair reading The Great Gatsby. Christine came in quietly and began lighting the fire. I jumped up. Don't do that. I'll do it. (laughs) I'm fine, Tom. She kneeled down in front of the grate. She wasn't fine. I wasn't fine. I would still catch her crying sometimes, when home on leave. Eyes reddened. Had even tiptoed away when spying her through the nursery door holding a hand-knitted baby's cap, never worn. I crouched down beside her, and she tried to smile back at me. Suddenly, the wailing of an air siren whirled around the village. It looks as though the children are roasting some sort of meat over their fire. Well, they can hunt, at least, Kyle said. Or, they are not adverse to eating human meat. They don't need us, and we definitely don't need them. Brother and sister? I ask quietly. Maybe, Kyle nods. They're young. They're dangerous. Too stupid not to set a fire out here in the open. Christine wouldn't forgive us if we left them out here by themselves. Who's going to tell her? You? Leave them and find out. I glance sideways at Kyle's kind face, whose green eyes scan the area around the children. He rubs at his thick beard, and dust floats into the air. He sets his regular rifle down, the Springfield still slung on his back, and reaches into the pocket of his service uniform, 5th Infantry Division, takes out a pair of military-issue binoculars. I knew that Kyle will soon have to give up the remnants of his uniform. It's aged now, but... I know that it gives Kyle a sense of structure, reminds him of his place in the world before, when all he had to worry about was keeping his promise to his dead parents to look in on his sister. Looks like trouble, Kyle says, passing me the binoculars. A group of four scavengers search the debris. They're wearing fraying military uniforms and dark gas masks, 
Scarves cover their faces, rifles slung on their backs. Kyle reaches for his rifle again, taking it off his back and handing it to me. I sigh and take it. Kyle aims the Springfield, looks through his scope. A shot echoes loudly. The body of the scavenger hits the floor, his friends looking around in fright. In quick succession, Kyle releases another three shots. The remaining gang members drop to the floor. We pick our way down the hill, revealing ourselves to the two children. Seeing us, they break into relieved smiles, pack away their things, and hurry to us. I greet them with a silent scowl. Kyle smiles broadly at them. What are you two called, then? The Spitfire's black propellers blurred as they rushed around and around. The uncertain controls flickered in front of me. I found it hard to see through the shaded glass that protected me from the embattled air above Britain. The dark sky raced towards me. The last of the German bombers had retreated into the distance of the fiery skies. I had lost sight of them. As the sun rose, I turned and radioed for base. Flying over London, I looked down at the empty streets, now burning pits of destruction. The long, dark German bomber soared through the sky strategically, dropping its powerful destruction carelessly onto the dark city below. Carefully, we made our way into the train station. The children, Jack and Emily are their names, follow close on our heels. Jack takes my hand. You were a pilot? Did you kill many Nazis? Did you see the big fire? I shrug off the little boy's hand. Kyle laughs. Emily looks on. It's been two years since the fire that ended the world. But for now, the station continues to stand. The staircase still snakes up towards the outside world. But debris swirls around them now. Not people. Newspaper sandwich boards announce, Italy surrenders. I hear a wheezing, coughing noise. A man lies at the bottom of the stairs, beneath the happily-looking advertisement for Ovaltine. Gives health and vitality. The skin on his burned face is tight and stretched, long-heeled. He wears metallic goggles. I can't see his eyes. The right side of the bag he has bears the tricolored shield of black, white, and red of Imperial Germany. But his clothes are a British military issue. His jacket has an ARP warden blue, is rolled up under his head. Kyle turns to me. We could patch him up. Too risky. I look at the children. You two, go look in that ticket office. I want to stay here with you. Jack says. Go on, I say, firm. Emily tugs at the boy's sleeve and pulls him towards the ticket office. Come on, she says. I draw my sword, and the crippled man doesn't see what's coming. He lets out a gurgled gasp. His last. I pick up the duffel bag, look through it. Handwritten letters in German, three tins of sardines, and cleanish bandages. The sardines and bandages will come in useful. I take off his shoes and put them in the bag. Emily's voice calls over. Not much there, just old papers. 
before they get close enough, I snatch off the jacket and goggles and roll him over. His dead eyes are dark as they flash at me briefly. Here, take these. I give the jacket and goggles to Jack. Amazing! Emily's knowing eyes meet mine for a moment. We quickly move on, heading home. Jack goes for my hand again, and I look down at his beaming grin. Just this once, I think to myself. Christine is sterilizing water when we return. She turns and watches us approach, noting the two small figures, one holding my hand. This next story is called Hell is Truth Seen Too Late by Callum, age 15. Sam heard a massive boom as the Altera shook him to the bone. The inferno was sudden. Its hot, blazing flames roared and boomed. Sam felt the hellish sparks, like arms of flame that were grabbing towards him. He saw the rest of space, and the very ending of it, and begged that he wouldn't have to find himself out there. He was close to the escape pod. He fled, noticing only a few floors down was engulfed in devilish flames. The alarm was blaring and the corridors blinked red. He saw the life pod 5 dock and picked up the pace. He could feel the Altera descending into hell. Sam threw himself into the harness and fastened. He cursed in pain as he smashed his hand against the eject button. The capsule shot out from the Altera and towards the planet. He fell unconscious with the pressure of the descent. Even when he was a child, Sam's hands were skinny, his fingers long and thoughtful. He was surrounded by the rows of white desks. He was disciplined, and his classmates were too, like good angels. The general entered. The general's uniform was gray and intimidating like all the teachers here. He asked Sam to follow him. Then, in Sam's small, tidy quarters, the general said he was saddened to tell Sam this news. The general said, I'm sorry for your loss, your mom and dad. Sam began to feel tears, but he pushed them down, deep down inside himself. The general cleared his throat, uncomfortably. They were in an accident. Sam was old enough to know what he meant and couldn't focus on the general as he stood in his darkening room. The general patted Sam's shoulder awkwardly. You'll be okay, cadet. Sam's legs felt watery. Now, Sam maneuvered himself out of the chair harness. Standing firmly, he squared his broad shoulders and took it all in. His brown eyes slowly combed his surroundings. What he needed right now was the med kit fabricator. As he reached for it, it hummed loudly with a whirring sound. He opened it and carefully bandaged his head. Now he could take a moment to breathe. He saw the empty chair next to him and remembered Alan. Sam and Alan were repairing the sea moths and sea glides. 
just as they had both learned from their children's class as young cadets. They worked with the repair tool. Does this remind you of cadet school? Sam asked. This seemed to trigger something for Alan, as he started to look behind his back and around him. This made Sam worry and ask, Are you okay, Alan? Alan stuttered. I'm I'm going to go now, Alan replied, then dropped his repair tool and rushed out of the bay and out of sight. Later, Sam saw Alan again crouching in a corner. Alan? Alan yelped and sprinted away faster than Sam thought Alan could run. Sam had spoke with the commander after that. He hadn't wanted to, but he was worried. Alan was at the other end of the enormous ship, and Sam began... Alan is worrying. He he is running away from me and is constantly checking around corners before he turns them. Command's voice replied with no feeling. Await instructions. No. Could we get help or Alan... or removed from the Altera? There was a pause, then... No. Alan would need to break a law or ask to be removed himself. Goodbye, Sam. Sam put the radio back against the wall. Then it happened. Alan had gone into a shuttle one morning. The Altera was thundering through the mess of the most recent planet visit's atmosphere. Sam suddenly heard Alan crying, and then the swoosh of the shuttle door opening. Sam turned and saw Alan climbing into the shuttle and fastening himself. Alan! No! Alan said nothing. He stopped looking scared for a moment and shook his head. Sam felt suddenly so alone. Don't do this, Alan. But Sam saw Alan press the eject button. He shot off into the vastness of space. Sam was left alone and could only smell the shuttle exhaust from around the corner as it filled the corridor. The escape hatch sat solidly below him. He was aware that he would soon need to use it. Sam saw the suspended fire extinguisher sitting firmly and, just to be sure, he checked for fire around the pod. He was getting paranoid. He then saw the diagnosis panel, which was red with errors and blinking madly. Next to it was the power panel, beaming and ticking down quickly. He needed to fix that as soon as possible. Under this was a wall-to-wall storage depot. He looked inside to find two flares, two bottles of water, and two food blocks wrapped in foil. Lying down on the bench, he closed his eyes, satisfied he had what he needed. He dreamed again. Underwater, the sounds were muffled. He was a child again. He was surrounded by the skeletal leviathan. The creature was colossal, but Sam knew it was only a baby still. In his field of vision, his parents were tiny, inconsequential spots in the depth of the water next to the child monster. The shadow it cast was icy cold, as it always was in the old dream. Its tail thrashed, causing a tsunami in the underwater world. 
Its jaws opened widely, like an underwater black hole, and snapped at his mother. Sam's hands reached out for his parents. He saw his father shoot a stasis rifle at the shadow as they screamed and shouted. The shadow engulfed the pair of swimmers, and Sam screamed in the dream, but woke only mewling in pathetic sadness. The water was far-reaching. It stretched out into the vastness forever. It was like a living, breathing entity in itself, and it breathed peacefully, resting, quiet. Inside the pod, the counter had counted down to almost zero. Sam had no choice but to enter the water of the planet. The dark ocean was deep, and its eerie presence stretched out and expanded. It lengthened ominously. The Altera looked broken and hurt as it sank. The creatures around him looked unlike anything he had ever seen before. The coral was colorful and vibrant as it moved and swayed steadily, and Sam was struck by their beauty. Near him, the underwater caves were large and whispering to him malevolently. Around it and above it, the vastness of the sea on this unknown planet was even more frightening than that of space. The Leviathan was waiting for him. And our last few stories of the evening are all by Molly Dugan. Thank you, Molly, for sending in so much material and... Molly didn't pull any punches, so this is where it gets a little bit more gory. (laughs) Enjoy! The Man Who Will Live Forever One chilly autumn night, a young boy was walking home from a party. He was walking on a path he knew well. The bushes were dry and their thorny branches scratched his legs. The air smelled of dust and damp, cold. The full moon gave little light because a cover of clouds blocked it. The young boy soon became disoriented. He came to a split in the path and paused. He decided that the left path was probably right, so he started walking down it. The boy soon realized that he did not recognize the path and he started to get frightened. He tried to find the split in the path that he had wandered off, but he just became more lost. He stepped on a twig, and it gave a loud, dry crack. The sound echoed back at him. Crack, crack, crack. He heard a snap behind him. That was definitely not an echo, and whirled around and felt a heavy object come down on his head. He blacked out. When he woke up, he was in total darkness. His hands were tied and he was gagged and had a blindfold over his eyes. The air smelled of rot, decay, mold, blood. It was a foul stench that filled him with fear and dread. Something ripped off the blindfold and he saw he was in a small, dark room. The walls seemed to be made of rotting, moldering oak planks. The ceiling sagged and looked very old and weak. 
The room's dark corners seemed to be full of moving shapes. A man stepped out of the shadows. He looked ghastly. Flesh was dripping from his face. His teeth were rotting, yellow and blood-stained. His hair was dry and brittle. He had one blue eye and one brown eye. He smelled of rot, decay, mold, blood, and death. The man grinned a horrible grin and said in a deep baritone voice, You have nice blue eyes. He ripped the gag from the boy's mouth and said again in that chilling baritone whisper, Your skin is nice. I could use new skin. What was left of the man's skin was horribly scarred. A long one ran from his left ear to his moldering chin. His hands were covered with scars. The boy was terrified. He started to scream. The man said, Don't waste that scream, boy. I haven't even started yet. The man grabbed the boy's face and peeled off the skin. The boy screamed in agony while the man fitted it on his face like a mask. Then he plucked out his own brown eye and pried out the boy's blue eye and put it in his empty socket. He tore off the boy's hands and ripped off his own left hand and put the boy's left hand on the stump. He did the same with the other hand. The boy's screams intensified into a long, sobbing wail of agony. The man now looked young and healthy. As the boy screamed, the man said, I just love to hear a child scream. He used the boy's own hand to rip open the child's stomach and screamed, I will live forever. The pale coils of the boy's intestines spilled out as he gave an agonized wail. He looked in one of the shadowy corners and saw piles of children's bodies. He smelled the stench of rotting flesh, mold, and decay. He took one last shuddering breath and died. The man grinned as he grabbed the boy's limp, bloody body and threw it in the corner with the rest. The Werewolf Hunts at the Full Moon's Light A girl named Rose was walking after dark. It was a chilly night and she was rather cold. The full moon gave off a soft yellow glow. The sky was cloudless, so there was nothing damping its glow. Her parents had warned her not to stay out after dark. On nights the moon was full and the sky was cloudless. They told her that the werewolf would come get her. It hungers for the flesh of humans and animals, but its favorite is the flesh of young women. Rose always thought that her parents were trying to scare her into not staying out late. A werewolf is someone who has been cursed. 
Every full moon, they will transform from a human into a vicious wolf that hungers for human flesh. They can walk on their hind legs like a human, or walk on all fours like a wolf. They tend to howl at the moon, a warning to all who are near. Rose never believed these legends. She heard a loud, mournful howl. She froze. There is no way that's a... No, no way. There's no such thing as a werewolf, Rose said to herself. The howl came again, louder, closer. The hair on the back of her neck prickled. She shivered. Rose began to walk faster. I am imagining this. This is not real. She tripped. There was a low growl. She screamed in terror. Rose tried to get up, but as she did, pain shot through her leg. She started to cry. Her leg was broken. A huge wolf was standing close. It must have been seven feet tall. It was standing on its hind legs. Its eyes were red as burning embers. She caught a glimpse of huge, yellowed, sharp, blood-stained fangs. Rose screamed again. Her parents were right. It gave a terrifying howl and lunged at her. Fangs tore into her flesh. The pain was like nothing she had ever felt before. Rose watched as a chunk of her own flesh was ripped away from her body. Her vision began to blur. I'm sorry, Mom. Dad, please forgive me. She mumbled weakly. The werewolf growled again, and the pain was lessening. It would all be over soon. Rose blacked out. No more pain. No more fear. And this is a true story from Molly. Here is a true one about a strange nightmare I had. About two years ago, I had a strange dream, although now I'm not so sure it was just a dream. The day had been an ordinary day. Nothing unusual had happened. I went to school, did my homework, went to the gym. I went to bed about 9.30 like I usually do. I laid in bed for about 10 minutes, then I fell asleep. At about 1 a.m., something woke me up. I assumed I was dreaming because everything seemed a bit off. I looked up, and at the end of my bunk bed, there was a horrifying creature crouching there. It had no eyes, sharp fangs. Its mouth dripped with blood, long bloody claws, and huge curved horns. I tried to scream, but nothing came out. It smelled so foul, I was terrified. It said in a voice that was so terrible, I can't even explain, You're a goner. Time to let go. It slashed out at my face, and I raised my arm to cover my face, and searing pain shot through my arm. There were four deep scratches in my forearm. I was so terrified. It hissed in laughter. Think you can escape? It lunged again, but this time I was ready. I grabbed my pocket knife and slashed at its chest. The scratch gushed blood. It turned clear the moment it touched my bed. 
It yelled in pain and fell back. I looked over the edge of my bed and it was gone. I thought I had been dreaming until I woke up in the morning and saw the four scratch marks on my arm. I have seen this creature four times since then. It hasn't hurt me again. It just sits at the end of my bed, looking at me with those empty sockets. Ever since that night, I never sleep without my pocket knife on a shelf I had my dad put up in my bunk. If anyone can tell me what this thing is and why it's tormenting me, that would be amazing. Thanks for listening. I have a big announcement for you guys. Um, Next week, I'll put it in the beginning of the episode, but since this was the teens episode, I wanted to just get it going. Um, I've started reading the classic novel Frankenstein for all of my patrons. So for as little as a dollar a month, you can listen to me slowly narrate the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. I'm doing it in parts. So, you know, you can listen at your leisure or wait for them all to come out. Right now I have the first part. And if you've read it, then I, I went over just kind of, you know, the concept and why I'm doing it. And then I read the letters, which are, is kind of the preface of the whole book. And speaking of Patreon, um, let me do my Patreon shoutouts. Thank you so much to Maria Ario, Nancy West, John Thomas, and Alicia Hopkins. Thank you so much, you guys. And you know what? I've really noticed an uptick in a lot of interaction on the Patreon page, and that makes me so happy. Remember, when you're a patron, you can send me direct messages, you can comment on each of the bonus episodes, which the bonus episodes are growing. If you haven't become a patron yet, then you've got a lot of extra scary to sleep content waiting for you. And I like to do a lot more, you know, kind of experimental stuff over there too. In fact, that's where the guided nightmares were born. I kind of, I put one out and saw if anybody hated it or loved it. And then I released it on my regular channel. And that's actually where all of the guided nightmares are going to live from now on. If you haven't heard the guided nightmare I have on my channel, there is one that you can listen to. Um, It's called, well, it's called guided nightmare room, but I believe I just, it's just called guided nightmare within my feed. So just kind of scroll back, find that, give it a listen. It's very different. I use my very um, amateur knowledge of meditation techniques to get you into a very quiet place, a very pensive place, and then I thrust you into your own horror movie or horror story, basically. So, check them out. Remember, you can follow me on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram, Reddit, Facebook. I think that's all of them. If you have a story to submit, remember, you can send them to scarytosleep at gmail.com. I think that's all. Thank you so much for listening. Go get some sleep and sweet dreams.